Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. In this episode, we talk about the three states of Samhan. I remember like my first time. As the title suggests, today we explore how Seoul became the birthplace of K-pop and why so many modern Korean presidents came from the area around Daegu. No, I'm, I'm half joking. This will be the first time that we talk about the ancestors who would eventually form our favorite cities, including Seoul, Busan, Daegu, and even Jeju. But I'm not joking in the sense that as we begin to paint a picture of the earliest South Koreans, you'll definitely see the roots of the personalities and characteristics of each region. These are shaped by the land, the sea, topography, and natural resources, and the early movement of man caused thereby. As long as we are inhabiting these bags of skin, which we call bodies, you know we're going to be influenced by these things more than we'd like, frankly. And 2,000 years, or 2,500 years in this case, it may be long in terms of human time, but in terms of geology, etc., it's just a blink of an eye. So you'll start to see as we talk about these ancient kingdoms that maybe not so many things have changed. We're going to have a little fun here. Of course, we're going to make some assumptions, but we're just trying to make history come alive here. In the penultimate episode, we were chugging along one timeline from 2 million years ago to 313 CE. So we were we covered a lot of time there. 313 when Goguryeo kicked out the Chinese Jin Empire from the Korean Peninsula. But because we had spent most of our time in the north, and when I say north, I don't just mean north of the, you know, 38th parallel, but up into Manchuria and parts of, you know, even Siberia and of course northern China as well and the Laodong Peninsula. Um in the ultimate episode, we had to check out to a commit dated 400 BCE. Fork Proceed along a parallel timeline, this time following the history of Korea just south of the 38th parallel. And uh, after this episode, we will fetch and merge into the master. Shout out to all my git homies. I may have been halfway joking about K-pop, but we do get a rare look at a Korea which is free from large-scale foreign invasions and thus able to evolve on its own, which is why I had such a good time studying this, studying for this episode. We learn about the Jin state of Korea and also about how the political structure of southern Korea at the time revolved around an organic-like set of building blocks. The smallest unit was a village which clustered into towns which were then organized into statelets. We learned about how these statelets matured into many polities which then allowed them to be further grouped into confederacies. Today we'll learn how these confederacies eventually formed into three large states that we collectively call the Samhan. We'll take a deep dive into each one and relate them to the South Korea that we know and love today, aided by a reading of the source material. In addition to the same resources from the last episode, I'll also be relying on the work of Lee Jae-hyun of the Ulsan Development Institute. First, I want to help you visualize Samhan on a map. Picture modern-day South Korea. I'm vastly oversimplifying here, but Mahan basically spans the entire west half. That means all the way near Incheon and Seoul, down the western coastline to include Daejeon and Gwangju. It's the largest and oldest Samhan and would eventually become Baekje. Now consider the eastern half. The top half was actually peopled by the Ye, which we talked about in prior episodes, so forget about that for now. Now picture the remaining quarter. Bisect that horizontally again, and the top of that half of that is Jinhan, which roughly encompasses uh, Gyeongsangdo, 
which eventually would become the capital of Silla, and to this day is a cultural and political powerhouse where many of South Korea's presidents are from. Byonhan is right below that. It's the smallest. It's basically the tip of the bottom of the peninsula and encompasses Busan. It may not have the cultural pull of Jinhan, but it has a ports that face Japan, which figures into this into its history. So purely as a mnemonic device for us, for now, Mahan is Seoul plus Western farmland, Jinhan is Southeastern Cultural Center, and Byonhan is Southern Port facing Japan. I want to mention that up front as we're going to discuss the history of the Samhan in general before getting into the details of each state. We start our story around 200 BCE or the 3rd century BCE. We talked about the statelets and the kind of organic growth that the statelets in southern Korea experienced, and how they were able to do so because they were largely free of um, foreign invasions. It reminds me a bit of Indonesia in the first century when the kingdom of Srivijaya blossomed among the archipelago. Yes, there was interaction with the Indian kingdoms at the time, but mostly Indonesia was able to grow on its own. Probably even more comparable would be Japan. The magic formula seems to be you want the freedom to evolve on your own terms, but you voluntarily import intellectual property from the outside. And it certainly doesn't uh, hurt to be uh, an island like Indonesia and Japan. So statelets were collections of towns. For example, the Mahan statelet of Sado was made up of 10 towns. And Sado, you're going to be hearing a lot in the future. Sado essentially becomes the capital of uh, Shila. Each statelet had a capital town, each town had a chief, and in the formative phase, there was not a large power gap between the constituent towns and the capital town, thus inhibiting real political consolidation. Nevertheless, even in this early stage, the chief of the capital towns were imbued with representative power with respect to external relations. Around 200 BCE, consolidation, however, did occur by means of economic, military, and ritual activities. Wiman Joseon's fall might have caused a temporary decline in trade, but that quickly picked up after Lelong Commandery was established in the 1st century BCE. As foreign goods and information from China flowed into the Samhan, statelets were incentivized to consolidate better to trade for such goods, including iron and wajil pottery, as well as the intellectual capital necessary to use them and create them. Meanwhile, perhaps not coincidentally, Tension between statelets increased, necessitating statelets to form cohesive military units. Tombs from this period unearthed today show a significant increase in weapons buried alongside chiefs. Furthermore, we find more walled enclosures during this period, and this is mostly from the archaeological research that is occurring in uh, southern Korea today. Finally, spiritual rituals serve to bind towns within a statelet together. During this time, Samhan statelets designated one individual— or what they called a chongun, to serve as a spiritual head, overseeing ritual sacrifices, for example. This is in contrast to earlier slender dagger societies in the 3rd and 2nd century BCE, in which the village chief served as a spiritual head as well. Ritual sacrifices served to gather important people from the towns to pray for peace, solidarity, and etc. And uh, we're also going to learn a bit more later in the episode about the separation of of leadership between military functions, civilian functions, and the religious function as well. 
Again, just another characteristic of the sophistication and the, the evolution of this state. Flashing forward to the 2nd century CE, historical and material evidence show a rapid rise in centralization of authority within the statelet. The Sado statelet, for example, is known to have built a hall of government affairs in 138 CE and the South Hall later in 249 CE. Thus, the capital towns began to grow in power vis-a-vis -vis their constituent town counterparts. This coincided with significant growth in economic and military power of the statelets. The Sangguoji states, for example, that during the reigns of the emperors Wan and Ling, which is around 146 to 189, the Han, or the, the Korean Han, strengthened significantly and the commanderies were not able to control them. Material evidence further bears this out when the tombs of the statelet chiefs increased dramatically in size and quantity of goods in relation to regular chiefs. And this kind of goes to a lot of the... You'll be hearing a lot about tombs in ter as far as archaeology is concerned on a peninsula for, you know, several pretty obvious reasons. You know, uh, this period of time is so long ago that the only surviving structures are most likely going to be underground. And it's convenient that during this period in time, the tombs of, you know, ordinary people as well as leaders were underground tombs built by the people at the time. And nothing survives, you know, war better than some hidden chamber underground. And a lot of times there was like a huge dolmen, which which is like, you know, a huge slab of rock covering the entrance to the tomb. So you can imagine even through all the modern horrific wars that occurred on the peninsula since that time, which we will be covering sometime in the future, these tombs were able to survive that. Speaking of artifacts that survive can survive long periods, periods of time, including war, the use of iron implements vastly increased agricultural productivity during this time, including the construction of irrigation systems, leading to even larger amounts of arable land. Concurrently, iron seems to have created more distinct social strata in which the ruling classes gained a greater hold on authority over the commoners. While Mahan might have been larger and closer to trade with the Lilang and therefore with China, it was Jinhan and Bianhan that had more available iron resources, thus becoming net exporters of iron to not only Mahan, but the Ye, the Wa, and the commanderies. I quote from historian E, quote, since the production of iron requires specialization, a few members of the ruling class had from an early period monopolized access to both iron ore and production technologies. King Talhe, the progenitor of the Sok lineage of the Sado statelet, was a smelter and was worshipped posthumously as a smelting god, unquote. And uh, you'll see, you'll, you can read about the legend of King Talhe in the uh, Sangguk Yusa. Like contemporary statelets in Japan, these statelets had their own markets in which they traded goods, while iron ingots, representing iron currency, are, are often excavated from tombs across Jinhan and Bianhan, indicating uniformity of size and weight. Thus, the Samhan had become a complex interregional trade network interconnecting the Korean statelets with the Chinese commanderies and Wa. In particular, the Guya statelet in Bianhan, or present-day Gime, became an important seaport. By the early 3rd century, you start to see evidence of these newly matured statelets grouping together to form confederacies. 
Maybe not confederacies large enough to con- constitute one of the Samhan, but large enough and organized enough to start dictating trade for the rest of the statelets around them. For example, during this time, the most powerful confederacy in Mahan was led by the statelet of Mokjiguk, or Mokji. Scientists are still searching for the exact location, but we do know it's near the Asan Bay, which is in Chungcheongdo on the west coast. Again, the theory is that this region of Mahan was able to develop earlier than in the north because they didn't have to face the direct turmoil of the fall of Gojoseon and the rise of the Chinese commanderies. By the second half of the 3rd century, we have irrefutable record of the three large confederacies Mahan, Jinhan, and Byonhan by name. We know that because by this time, the Jinshu, or the history of the, Jin, the Chinese Jin dynasty, records multiple instances of tribute missions from 276 to 291 with the names Mahan and Jinhan. Uh, we'll get into this in, in detail in a minute. The biggest impetus for organizi- organizing might have been Samhan's desire to trade with China. Records state that a thousand people had received official robes, caps, and seals with cordons from the Chinese commanderies, which was their ticket for part- participating in trade with the Chinese. You saw this also happen in Gojoseon and Goguryeo. The statelets in the north of Mahan, near the commanderies, joined together and gained clout. Culturally and ethnically, they differed from the Mokjiguk, and they maintained relations with the Ye tribes. This confederacy is solidly in Gyeonggi-do, which is the province in which Seoul now physically sits. Now, Seoul is a special administrative region set aside as a capital city, much like Beijing and Tokyo. Um, but the province in which it's physically located is Gyeonggi-do. Thus, the center of power in Mahan shifted northward towards modern-day Seoul, based partially on those statelets' control over trade. But equally important was the development of their military. Having to contend with the Chinese commanderies had initially slowed their development, but ultimately forced them to increase their military solidarity. As is so often the case in history, what started out as a disadvantage actually helped them to become stronger. They were located in the northern part of that region, which meant that they were right up against the Chinese commanderies and Gojo-san, which were constantly at war and fighting. Unlike the Mokji, who are away further south and probably just chilling on their rice paddies while all this war was going on up north. I'm kidding a little bit, but no question that the Gyeonggi-do regions and statelets were really influenced by all the turmoil going on in the northern half of the peninsula and ultimately made them a lot stronger. The proof that we have that uh, they were getting very strong is that the Wei, the Chinese Wei Empire, um, instituted an official policy to break up the increasing power of the Samhan based on the actions of this the Gyeonggi-do statelets. As a kind of a review, you may remember that the Chinese Wei Empire defeated the military warlord Gongsun. Gongsun and his very opportunistic family had taken over the Lilong commanderies while there was this, you know, huge change in power uh, on the Chinese mainland. And uh, anyway, the Wei Empire came back and took it back in 239 uh, CE. So not having any of this, the Mahan statelets in the Gyeonggi region grouped together and attacked Daifang's Chili camp in 246, causing the death of the Daifang governor. Another interesting change that shows how interconnected the world is, is when the Wei Empire fell in 265, the Western Jin Empire took over Lilong and Daifang commanderies. The Jin, the Chinese Jin, then shifted the locus of trade with Samhan to faraway Laodong. 
This precipitated the change in power structure away from Mokjiguk in Chungcheongdo to the Gyeonggi-do statelets, including Baekje. Meanwhile, in eastern neighbor Jinhan, the opposite was occurring. Whereas in Mahan, the center of power shifted from south to north, in, Jin- in Jinhan, the center of power shifted north to south, principally from the Gyeongsangbukdon region to the south, to cities such as, um, I'm sorry, from Gyeongsangbukdo in the northern part of Jinhan, to cities such as Gyeongju, Ulsan, and Pohang, and Gimhae. We also start to see more sophisticated politics occurring within the region. For example, Gyeongsangbukdo's power began to wane in the th- late 3rd century, even though it had the best access to Lilong's prestige goods than down south. In contrast, iron-rich Gimhae, Ulsan, and Gyeongju gained relative power during this period. What determined power earlier was access to prestige goods from Lilong, such as Chinese bronze mirrors. Later, however, it was the proximity to natural resources that allowed Gimhae and other statelets to expand their power. For example, one policy was to require that important officials get buried with tons of goods such as iron, ceramic, and lacquer items. By enforcing this policy, states such as those in Gimhae imposed large costs on their neighbors, thus establishing a sort of social dominance. Not only coming up with these rules, but also having the ability to enforce it, I think shows the kind of increasing centralization of power that we've been talking about. What you also see is the indigenous people asserting their independence from foreign influence, because whereas before, in order to have prestige, you wanted to have some items made in China, as your people start to get more advanced and start to learn how to use the natural resources around it, and also to value the natural resources as well, um, you start to see the power of balance shift towards the people that have access to these natural resources. This is evolution and Darwinism at its best viewed within the Petri dish of a southern Korea largely absent of interference by outsiders. Speaking of which, um, a few thoughts on the Wa Kingdom, or Japan. During this period, there was a lot of maritime trade occurring between the three civilizations of China, Korea, and Japan. However, despite Samhan being much closer to Japan, because Lilong, which is basically Pyongyang, was where the Chinese set up their headquarters, the records and material evidence corroborate that most of the trade centered north of Samhan. The Samguoji is quite detailed in mapping out the trade route. It went from the island of Tsushima and Iki in Kyushu, stopped in Gimhe, and then traveled along the west coast of Mahan up to Pyongyang. And from what I understand, it's not just the location of the people, but also the currents around the peninsula actually were more favorable to that trade route. Material evidence corroborates this as archaeologists are always digging up artifacts from China and Korea and Japan along this route. So as a summary, we've discussed in detail the formation of the Samhan and their development from loosely joined towns called statelets into developed statelets led by a capital town. Uh, in between that time, you saw the, the increase in the use of iron, which then increased the discrepancy between the, the ones with power and the ones without power and how these statelets organized into confederacies, and then they started to actually impose their will on those around them, including statelets such as Mokjiguk, which is in Chungcheongdo, and uh, Saro, which is in Jinhan. We now have a clearer picture of how these confederacies ended up as Samhan. It was just a natural evolution in which they were headed. It just seems to be a logical step that 
as all these confederacies start to band together into bigger confederacies, why not get to the point where you're, you've essentially created a, a state? As statelets competed with each other via prestige goods, then access to natural resources and political maneuvering, a hierarchy was formed. Now imagine them grouping together out of common interest or maybe even coercion. One of those interests is cutting better deals with the Chinese, which leads us to the definitive proof that all these statelets had organized into three legit states. It's on the record of the Chinese side of tributary missions, missions to the Chinese commanderies. In the Jinshu, or the history of the Chinese Jin, there is a careful record of 12 years of trade missions from southern Korea to the Jin Empire via Lilang in the years 276 to 291. In it, there is a record of the year, the month, the group of people that came, and how many polities were represented in each mission. It's extremely well organized, honestly. If they had Microsoft Excel back then, they probably would have used that. Some years, there were two missions. Um, so for to uh, so the, in total, there were 18 missions. Mahan and Jinhan are recorded there, as well as Shinmiguk, which is a statelet in Mahan. Byunhan is not mentioned particularly in this, specifically in this uh, record, but they are mentioned in other accounts. But the nature of this record is a starting point for another question. What kind of polity was Samhan exactly? The prevailing answer now is that it was not a kingdom or state in the same way Gojoseon was. We know that because there were at least two entities that sent missions to the Jin under the name Mahan. In 282 and 289, the Mahan tribute was led by the Shinmiguk in the Yongsan River region, while in other times it was the Baekje statelet that led the tribute. The same occurs in Jinhan, in which the number of particip participating statelets varies according to the mission. Perhaps participation in the trade mission was voluntary, or perhaps some statelets refused or were too destitute to participate. Of course, this alone isn't conclusive proof that they were not the kind of kingdoms or states that Gojoseon was. For example, you know, if a trade mission from the states visited another country, just because only 25 of the 50 states participated doesn't mean that United States doesn't exist as a political entity. Having said that, this record, in addition to all the other records out there, um, lead historians to surmise that Samhan was more like a confederacy. You may remember that Gojoseon had a king with a title and, at the least, titular and official reign over all his subjects, obviously with varying degrees of success and uh, practicality. As far as we know, the Samhan did not have this kind of long-lasting central authority. There, there is a record of some of the Samhan mentioning that they had kings, but at least from the evidence that we have right now, there doesn't seem to be a, a bloodline or primogenitor happening here. Maybe in another geographic region or maybe in another time and place, they would be considered more of a state rather than a confederacy. But I think the distinction that historians are trying to make here is not necessarily to somehow downplay the sophistication of the Samhan, but really to give the proper kind of recognition to the states that succeeded them, basically Baekje and Shila we have to make some distinction between the level of statehood, so to speak, between the Samhan and Baekje and Shila. Baekje and Shila was a whole new level of sophistication. And to use the same terminology for both of these would not be right. 
And clearly, it was the Chinese historians, even back then, that recognized this when they first coined the term statelet. When you look at the Chinese characters, it basically just says small country, but obviously they were using that very, very purposely to distinguish it from a quote-unquote true country. We would be doing grave injustice to Baekje and Shila if we basically use the same term and same, if we treated them the same way as the Samhan. The Samhan had many characteristics of a political entity, and we may even call them states, but we should make clear that they, at least from the evidence we have so far, did fundamentally differ from Baekje and Shila. So finally, let's talk about each Samhan in detail. And I'm actually going to be going into the source material, namely the Ho Hanshu, which was written by a Chinese historian or compiled by Chinese historians in the 5th century, but they are using contemporary sources um, from the Samhan period, roughly around 5 CE to 169 CE, I believe. So it's very, very early days of the Samhan. And uh, if we if we are to believe that this is a, a an accurate accounting um, or an accurate translation, which we do, then it's a, really a treasure trove. First up is Mahan, which is the largest and most advanced. Historians guess that it was the original Han, and that ex post facto was relabeled Mahan to z- distinguish it from Jinhan and Byonhan. Jinhan might have been sort of a split off from Mahan, which we will uh, discuss uh, soon. The statelets in Mahan were larger than those in its cousins, including those in modern day Seoul. Just think about that for a second. All the histories we discussed regarding the northern kingdoms of Gojos and Goguryeo, at least earlier in the time period, were all happening north of Seoul, and in some cases north of even the North Korean border. So the states we're talking about now, including Jin and Mahan, are solidly based in the Republic of Korea. Having said that, it seems that the start of Mahan culture was not in Seoul or the Gyeonggi-do region, but south of that in Chungcheong and Jeolla. Material evidence suggests these statelets formed earlier than those in Gyeonggi-do, maybe because the northern states had to deal with the Chinese commanderies, as, as we mentioned before. I quote from Yi Jae-hyun, quote, After the 2nd century AD, however, the Baekje polity that occupied the lower Han Valley underwent rapid growth due to various factors, including the relocation of people from Lelong, as well as the region's advantageous geographic placement, allowing it access to the Yellow Sea maritime trade network, unquote. So to reiterate, um, when once immigration or migration patterns were a disadvantage to the Gyeonggi-do region, this became an advantage as people from Lelong started immigrating into uh, Mahan. Here, I read from historian Byington's recent translation of the Ho Han Shu. To be very specific, um, it's called The History of the Eastern Han Dynasty. The, The volume is called Biographies of the Eastern Yi. And the book within the volume is entitled the, the Account of the Korean Han. So here's the opening paragraph. There are three kinds of Han. The first is Mahan, the second Jinhan, and the third Byonjin. Um, quick aside here, Byonjin was the original name for Byonhan. Mahan lies in the west and it has 54 polities. It adjoins Lilong on the north and Wa on the south. Jinhan lies in the east and has 12 polities. It adjoins Yemek on the north. Byonjin lies to the south of Jinan, and it has 12 polities. It also adjoins Wa on the south. In all, they have 78 polities, among which is the polity of Baekje. Unquote. Uh, you know, very basic and a little dry. Uh, this actually reminds me of, quote, 
all of Gaul is divided into three parts, unquote, which is the opening of Julius Caesar's account of the Gallic Wars, um, which I had to translate in the original Latin during high school for like three years straight. It was the bane of our existence. That was the first thing that we were, the first real text that we were asked to translate back then because it was so basic. And the reason it's basic is because it was written by the historians for posterity. And if there is one civilization that understands the the true length of time of human history, it's the, the Chinese empire. It does get a little more interesting, though. Continuing on here, quote, Mahan people know how to till fields and engage in sericulture. They make brocade cloth and produce large chestnuts as big as pears, and they have long-tailed chickens with tails five chi in length. Their villages lie intermixed, and they also have no walled towns. They build earthen chambers shaped like tomb mounds, on top of which they make a door. They do not know to kneel or bow, and they do not distinguish between old and young or male and female. They do not value gold or fine fabric, and they do not know how to ride oxen or horses. They only value stone beads, which they sew into clothing as decoration or wear suspended from their necks or ears. In general, they wear nothing on their heads but coil up their hair into wedge-shaped knots, and they wear cloth robes and straw sandals. As anthropological as this account sounds, it gives us our first picture of Koreans, South Koreans, I should say. The, all the little details are there, and you could start to form in your mind what these inhabitants might have looked at, especially the, the wedge-shaped knots on their head, which maybe that's how the, the hairstyles in Joseon um, evolved into. And as a Korean, I'm often very curious about what the quote-unquote true Korea looks like. I mean, I, most of us are the same way, since every country over time has been influenced by constant interaction with different cultures, it's impossible to know what customs and beliefs are truly yours. In a sense, nothing is truly Korean in the same way that nothing is truly English or Swedish or Nigerian, because there's been too much intermixing. But having said that, what can we say about the Korean culture before the huge influence of China and to another extent, uh, the steppes people? And I think this is a really good picture of that. This might be our best snapshot of what an indigenous Korean culture looked like. And as indigenous as you can get, obviously. I mean, they, as you know from one of our first episodes, the, the, the Korean people actually emigrated, might have emigrated from Siberia, essentially. And of course, there were immigration patterns coming from, you know, across the land bridge from all over the north. Having said that, I mean, this is as early as it gets in terms of historical accounts. We also know that during this time, although there was a lot of interaction across the sea with Japan, it was limited to the seaports. And if there was a lot of influence going back and forth, there is there is an argument to be made that the direction was mostly from Korea to Japan. Obviously, Korea being the gateway, not just for Korean culture, but for the Chinese culture as well. So to the extent that it's possible, this description of Mahan by the Chinese is the best evidence of indigenous customs. Customs. I'll read on. Quote, their people are tough and brave. When their young men work to build chambers, they pierce the skin of their backs with rope and hang from this a large piece of wood and sing as they work, considering this to be beneficial for their health. They usually perform sacrifice to the gods and spirits in the fifth month at the end of planting, drinking, and gathering together day and night. They sing and dance in groups, 
and when dancing several tens of people follow each other, stepping on the ground in harmony. They do this again in the tenth month when the farm work is done. Remember I talked about K-pop in the beginning of the, this episode? I was, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, I'm half joking here, but I'm just saying one of the first accounts of Koreans have them singing and dancing together. I don't have any comment on the practice of hanging signs from a piercing in your back other than to say that the rope and sign must have been pretty lightweight. Um, but the singing and dancing in, in synchronized rhythm, I'm not saying it's BTS's lineage, but I'm not, not saying that either. This is Mahan, which encompasses present-day Seoul. Reading on here, quote, The various central townships each select one, per one person to oversee the sacrifice to the Spirit of Heaven, whom they call the Lord of Heaven, or Chungun. They also set up Sodo, erecting a large log from which they suspend bells and drums to serve the spirits. The Sodo is really interesting. I looked it up online, and basically the Sodo is a designated area in the village which is considered sacred. It could have been a clearing in a forest, for example. There may have been even, been, even been structures there. And the log that they're referring to, I also looked up online. I'll, 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 put a, I'll post a picture of it on my website. But they... Some of them look like Native American totem poles. They're basically large logs that have been stood upright. And at the very top, but they don't have carvings into them. At the very top, there are these wooden protrusions that kind of look like wooden ducks in a way. And presumably the Chungun would have hung bells and drums from there to either attract or ward off the spirits. The Korean internet also says something very interesting about the Sodo. The Sodo had a type of sanctuary, uh, the kind of sanctuary that they had in medieval Europe, in which if you were a criminal and you were looking for sanctuary, you could run to the Sodo and the military and civilian officials wouldn't be able to touch you. And to finish off the quote uh, from, our, from the reading source material, quote, their southern borders are near the Wa, so there are also some who tattoo their bodies, unquote. And uh, this is not the first time or last time that they mention tattooing in relation to the Japanese uh, civilization. Moving on to Jinhan. The, the written records specifically state that Jinhan was formed from an influx of immigrants from both the state of Jin and Joseon into present-day Gyeongsangdo. Quote, in Jinan, the elders say that there were refugees from Chin who came to avoid harsh service. So they went to the Han polities, and Mahan separated some of its territories on its eastern borders and gave it to them. They referred to a state as a country, bows as crescents, thieves as bandits, and drinking spirits as imbibing wine. The one comment I have here is that... Uh, the referring to drinking spirits in a, a different way may have been a custom that they had gotten from a lot of the immigrants within their borders. Reading onward here, quote, they refer to one another as quote unquote confrere, in which they are similar to Chin people. Therefore, some refer to them as Chin Han. They have walled towns and palisades, houses and chambers. The various small detached villages each have chip chieftains. The greatest are called Shinji, the next being Gamchuk, then Byonye, then Sare, then Upcha. Unquote. And one quote I wanted to draw your attention to. Quote, their custom is to enjoy singing, dancing, and drinking, and playing the dither. Unquote. 
I'm just going to leave that right there, but also mention that two of the BTS members were born in Daegu, which is in Jinhan, or would have been in Jinhan. Reading on here, quote, When a baby is born, they like to make its head narrow, so they always press it with stones. Their land is rich and beautiful, good for producing the five grains. They know how to cultivate the silkworm, and they produce a fine silk cloth. They ride oxen and horses and have them pull carts. In their marriage practices, they have rights. Travelers yield the road to one another, unquote. Oxen and horses were much more common north of Korea, and so it's possible that the Jinhan adopted these practices from either the Chinese or the Northern Kingdoms or, the, yeah, the Northern Kingdoms, including Gojoseon. So that there you see kind of the cultural difference between Mahan or the Seoul region and, uh, Chung, uh, excuse me, uh, Gyeongsang-do, uh, which is uh, Jinhan. Parts of all of Jinhan eventually became Shila, the powerhouse kingdom that eventually conquers, you know, most of the entire peninsula with the aid of Tang China. So it's not a surprise to note that Jinhan might have been the most multicultural from the get-go. If much of its formation was due to migration from the Chinese Qin as well as from those escaping the fall of Gojoseon, then it's not a stretch to say that they had a head start in social politics, technology, and learning. And here we come back to the comment that I made at the top of the episode regarding presidents. So six out of the 12 presidents of the Republic of Korea are from the Gyeongsangdo region. In other words, Jinhan. Last but not least, Byonhan. Byonhan, being the smallest Han, gets somewhat short shrift here. The histories merely mentioning that they were very similar in culture to Jinhan. Material evidence supports this. Even as late as the second century, Burial practices and artifacts showed a similarity to Jinhan. We know that the Byonhan statelets would eventually become Gaia uh, Confederacy, a topic which we will cover soon enough. I had talked about the importance of Samhan to the Three Kingdoms period, and it's worth repeating here. It's not mere coincidence that southern Korea during this time split into three states. In addition to natural boundaries provided by mountains, climates, and rivers, there was a matter of ethnicity, migration patterns, and natural resources. So of the Byonhan, uh, the Hohan Shou says, quote, The Byonjin reside intermixed with the Jinhan, with whom they share similar walled towns and clothing, but there are differences in their languages and customs. Their people are all tall and large. Their hair is beautiful, their clothing is clean, and their punishments and laws are rigid and strict. Their country lies near the Wa, so they tend to tattoo their bodies. Unquote. I'll be honest, I don't know much about Byonhan yet, but I do know that it essentially is where Gaia Confederacy comes from. And so when we cover Gaia Confederacy in another episode, we're going to find out soon enough the character of Byonhan and how they distinguish themselves from the rest of the country. Uh, Byonhan is also where Busan is, and I've never been to Busan. It's definitely on my bucket list. I do know that it has its very, very own unique flavor, which no question, I think, um, has its roots in Byonhan. So this takes us to around 313 CE, when Goguryeo defeat, uh, defeats the Lilan commandery for good and sets up an internal showdown between it and its southern rivals, Shilla and Baekje. This is commonly known as a real Three Kingdoms period of Korea, and it's as exciting as it sounds. So we'll end here for this episode, and we'll continue on with the, the history of Korea next time. Yeah.